The KSTE Farm Hour, brought to you in part by Mavinto Insecticide from Bayer. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. California's farmers are starting to get a handle on crop conditions after a year of whipsaw weather. Atmospheric rivers with torrential downpours, an abnormally warm winter followed by a late season freeze. We look at some of the damage being uncovered around California's farms, and that includes a declaration of disaster for one crop in Tehama County. Which of California's crops will be most adversely affected by the ongoing tariff battles between the U.S. and China? And will California's farmers be offered any federal protection? Plus, we pay a visit to a local farmer's market and get an update on the battle against the Asian citrus psyllid. All that crop reports and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. You remember those unusually low temperatures back in February? Well, they remember them in Tehama County. And up there, the Tehama County Department of Agriculture requested a declaration of disaster last week from the Governor's Office of Emergency Services after the almond crop damage report showed a 40% loss. According to the official request form, the damage has been estimated at over $19 million. The Red Bluff Daily News reports that 30% of the 62 farms in Tehama County face 30 to 39% crop loss, with another 30% facing a 40 to 49% crop loss. 10% of farms caught the worst of it, facing up to a 79% loss. Most of that damage came in February during a string of 11 particularly cold days, four of which saw lows between 26 and 28 degrees. Now, these declarations of disaster have to work their way through the bureaucracy. A county can record Request a declaration of disaster when crop damage exceeds 30% of the previous five-year average. The process consists of the California branch of the U.S. Department of Agriculture reviewing the county's numbers. If it finds the same amount of loss, then the request can be forwarded to the federal office in Washington, and local farms may then qualify for aid, such as for low-interest loans. Information is still being processed regarding prunes, as well as winter range grassland for grazing. We are now officially at the start of 2018 Farm Bill deliberations in Congress. Thanks to the House Agriculture Committee's markup of its version of the legislation and its vote. The vote is 26 yeas to 20 nays. The ayes have it, and the motion to pass the bill and move it to the House voted out favorably as agreed to. As well as the debate that comes with all manner of forms, titles, and subjects within a Farm Bill. The current Farm Bill is set to expire at the end of this year, so we have a duty to act. Mr. Chairman, this is a flawed bill. I oppose it. Now from opening remarks from the House Farm Bill markup, courtesy of House Ag Chair Mike Conaway of Texas and Ranking Member Colin Peterson of Minnesota. Yet as two longtime members of the House Ag Committee, Representatives Frank Lucas of Oklahoma and Jim Costa of California pointed out during markup, what transpired is just the first of several steps along the way in making a new farm bill into law. We mark up the farm bill, then as amended by the body, we'll go to the floor. Maybe there are sufficient votes to pass it. The Senate is working on writing a bill. They will need 60 votes. Which, if both bodies of Congress pass their respective farm bill legislations, enough differences in their measures would lead to a conference committee to craft the final bill. Perhaps. Long-standing members of both ag committees have seen their share of twists and turns in crafting farm bills through the legislative process. Representative Lucas says, for instance... 2013, Mr. Peterson and I found out that 218 people wouldn't vote with us on the floor of the United States House. And that added an extra year and a whole bunch of gyrations to go through. That led to a two-year extension of the previous farm bill, approved in 2008, before what is now the existing law became law almost five years ago. 
That prompts Representative Costa to ask if indeed lawmakers do not reauthorize the Farm Bill prior to its September 30th expiration date. Do we provide an extension, which I don't think is satisfactory to anybody. But one thing Representative Lucas is sure of, regardless of the length or direction of path, crafting a new Farm Bill into law will take. The product we start with now may not exactly look like the product that will get to the President of the United States desk. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The Western Farm Press reports that California commodities will be particularly hard hit by the roughly $500 million in Chinese tariffs imposed on American agricultural goods. That according to a new study from an interest group known as Farmers for Free Trade. New tariffs of 15 to 25 percent are attached to goods including almonds, walnuts, pistachios, grapes, oranges, apples, cherries, wine, ginseng, and pork. The tariffs announced on April 2nd were in response to new U.S. duties on imported steel and and aluminum. Among the states affected the most by the Chinese duties? California, followed by Washington, Iowa, Missouri, and North Carolina. All told, those states sent $2.6 billion in exports to China in 2017. Among the California commodities that'll be hardest hit, according to the report, pistachios could see $99 million in potential additional duties. California pistachio producers sent $660 million in exports to China last year. Almonds could face up to $28 million in additional duties. The industry sent $184 million in exports to China last year. Wine shipments could incur $29 million in additional Chinese duties. The U.S. shipped $196 million in exports to that nation last year. And University of California Davis economist Daniel Sumner warns that California exports could suffer long-term damage as the state loses its reputation as a reliable source of agricultural goods. And the federal response? Well, meanwhile, in Washington... If China's current fees and tariffs on pork and sorghum and announced future tariffs on other ag products should cause economic damage to farmers, President Trump has said, of course... We'll make it up to them. But how? I'm not sure it's prudent to uh, lay out the game book for others. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue telling farm broadcasters in Washington Tuesday USDA does have a number of possible tools it could use. Meanwhile We're looking very closely to see meeting with the sorghum producers specifically right now, watching pork very carefully in that but we don't want to move too quickly we don't want to move in a way that would set a precedent of expectation from all producers. One of the challenges would be just figuring out what damage there is and how much of it is specifically related to China's actions. And again We've calculated numbers. I just don't think it's appropriate today to talk about the numbers that our economists have calculated and predicted in that way. He said he hopes we never need the numbers and that China will negotiate. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. The late surge of precipitation in California has led to improved water supplies, although reservoir managers remain conservative. The state water project last week announced it's increasing supplies to 30% of customers' requests. That's up from the previous 20%. The Federal Central Valley Project had earlier announced it would raise allocations to 40% to ag customers south of the Delta and provide full supplies for northern customers. That 30% SWP allocation amounts to about one point. 2 million acre feet of water. It's distributed among the 29 state water project contractors who serve more than 27 million Californians on about 750,000 acres of farmland. A 100% allocation is rare even in wet years due to Delta pumping restrictions to protect threatened and endangered fish species. The last 100% state water project allocation was back in 2006. 
The state's major reservoirs continue to be well above their historical averages. San Luis Reservoir, the largest off-stream reservoir in the United States where water is stored for the state water project as well as the Central Valley project, is at 89% of capacity. Shasta Lake, the CVP's largest reservoir, is at 92% of capacity. Lake Oroville is at 67% of capacity, and New Maloney's Lake is at 86%. Senators frequently asked USDA Secretary Sonny Perdue about broadband at a Senate Ag Committee hearing on the state of rural America. We appreciate the $600 million that was placed in the omnibus that will give us an opportunity to develop pilots with the idea of not not a concentrated uh, laser focus, but pilots that demonstrate how this can be deployed across the United States. He says the money allocated is not going to be able to pay for all of the country's broadband needs all by itself. But we hope to use that as a uh, uh, as money to optimize and to leverage other money from the private sector, be they rural utility co-ops, rural telephone co-ops, or the private sector. He again stressed the importance of broadband connectivity. It is the interstate highway of the 21st century. And we're going to continue to see rural demise and demographic uh, uh, changes in those areas if we don't provide those kind of amenities. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Here's this week's California crop report. Fields are being prepared to plant rice in the Sacramento Valley as farmers anticipated planting in the upcoming week. Cornfields are prepared and planted as weather and soil conditions permit. Winter wheat and oat conditions are improving with the recent rains. Alfalfa is maturing and the harvest is beginning. Ground preparation continues for row crops. Vineyards are leafing out somewhere in the early stages of flowering. Leaf removal began in some vineyards. Stone fruit orchards continue to leaf out as the bloom draws to a close. Thinning of immature fruit on early stone fruit varieties has begun. New orchards are being planted. Cherries are sizing well. Some are beginning to show color. Pomegranates and persimmons were producing flower buds in Fresno County. The harvest of late variety navel oranges continues, and the fruit was showing some grading issues. Seedless mandarin groves remain netted for the bloom. Lemons continue to be harvested. Some citrus trees were being planted. The walnut and pistachio bloom is ongoing. Warm weather spurred almond development and the start of irrigation. Pesticides and fungicides were applied to some almond groves. Weed control is underway as well. Brassicas, lettuce, and asparagus progressed well in Monterey County, though rains and a cool climate slowed the harvest. Greenhouse vegetables continue to be harvested in Tulare County, and squash, cucumber, and strawberries are progressing well. Summer vegetable fields are being prepped for planting. Rangeland and non-irrigated pasture quality continues to improve in the North State. Non-irrigated range in San Luis Obispo County was beginning to dry out. Sheep are grazing on retired cropland. Some beehives were moved to plum orchards. Out-of-state hives brought in for the almond bloom were being moved out of California. The bees, though, are active in citrus and olive groves. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. 
As we've discussed on this program before, the board of the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California has voted to chip in something like $10.8 billion to help California water fix continue. That's the official name for the Delta Tunnels project. Still, it's a $17 billion price tag for two tunnels that would transport water under the Delta going from about Cortland to Tracy. The MWD decision puts the project on a much firmer footing. But according to Lisa Lean Major, Deputy Secretary for Communications at the California Natural Resources Agency, there are still a few water agencies that need to take specific funding commitments to their boards. And more details on the project funding won't be available until May. Financing is not the only issue that needs to be addressed. There's still a long list of regulatory and legal hurdles the project needs to clear, along with the efforts of a well-organized opposition to the Delta Tunnels, that according to Barbara Berrigan-Perea of Restore the Delta. There's still a water board process going on for the change um, in the uh, point of diversion. That's ongoing if... We do not prevail there, and if not enough conditions are slapped on the project by the water board, there will be litigation from that. There's an Army Corps of Engineers permit that still has to be pursued. This is definitely not a slam dunk for them. There's been nearly 20 lawsuits filed in state court and two in federal court, according to Water Deeply. Most of the cases have been coordinated before one judge in the Sacramento County Superior Court. The initial case management conference was held on March 23rd, and the next won't be until May 24th. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey notes that a snowstorm in the upper Midwest is among the reasons that planting has been delayed for corn. National progress on that date is 5%. That is uh, just barely one-third of the five-year average pace of 14%, and it is one-third of what we had seen planted a year ago on April 22, 2017. Looking at the heart of the Midwest. We are seeing a number of states at least 10 percentage points behind their five-year average pace. He says this includes Illinois, Iowa, Kentucky, Minnesota. And Missouri, the furthest behind on paper, 16% planted, but that is behind the five-year average of 35%. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. According to the Capitol Press, the national organization, the National Young Farmers Coalition, conducted a survey of over 700 beginning and aspiring farmers and ranchers. What was the biggest obstacle to making a living in agriculture or getting started on the farm for them? Student debt. More than half of the respondents were currently farming, but struggling to make their student loan payments on a farm income, and one-third reported they didn't pursue farming or were postponing a career in agriculture due to that student loan debt. Among the respondents, the average student loan debt was $35,000. That's a lot for a young grower trying to get started on a farmer's salary. One solution being proposed is a loan forgiveness program for farmers under the age of 35. High anxiety, it's you that I fear. Oh yes, only Mel Brooks could take anxiety and make it into a, a comedy, but for many farmers these days, it's not funny, it's for real. 
There's a lot of anxiety in farming. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue telling a congressional hearing the other day that farming can be stressful in itself, of course, but lately extra stressors have been added. Well, you take the trade disruption conversations we're having with China, uh, NAFTA, as well as RFS. There's a lot of stress out there, a lot of duress in the ag community, and it gets cumulative. It's just like life. Different situations happen in life. It, the, the stress is cumulative. There's already financial stress. USDA is forecasting 2018 net farm income to be the lowest in 12 years. And USDA's chief economist, Rob Johansson, says while commodity prices continue to struggle, farm production costs are rising definitely. Fuel and fertilizer costing more. Labor costs are expected to increase. We know that interest rates are going up, so that's another area where we see increasing cost of production. Also, analysts expect direct government safety net payments to farmers to decline by over 18.5%. Total expected result for farm sector profits. Certainly moving in the wrong direction. And according to another USDA report, they may not be moving very much in the right direction for some time. It says for the next 10 years, as far as farm commodity prices. There's not going to be a whole lot of year-to-year movement in prices. But USDA analyst David Stalling says there will be movement in production costs upward. We do have farm production expenses increasing through the remainder of the projection period as crude oil prices, interest rates, and inflation rise. The report projects net cash income for farmers in 2027 to be 12.5% lower than it's projected to be this year. So add it all up, and it's no wonder some farmers are just a little anxious. Secretary Perdue says just a little good news out of the NAFTA negotiations or the China situation would certainly help a lot. To reduce that anxiety meter. And cut back on that high anxiety. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Lots of tractors working the rice fields of Sacramento Valley right now. Bruce Montgomery of Bear Creek Farming in Willows provides an update on field preparation before the rice planting begins. After recent spring rains, it feels great to be back in the field, making forward progress, try planting fields, getting ready to plant some rice. I think if everything stays on schedule with Mother Nature, we should have all the rice in the ground by May 10th. There will be slightly fewer acres of rice planted this year in the Sacramento Valley. Prospective plantings of medium grain California rice, 385,000 acres. That's down from 400,000 acres in 2017 and 490,000 acres in 2016. However, there is a gain in the prospective planting of short grain California rice. In 2018, 50,000 acres expected to be planted. Last year, it was just 38,000 acres. Even if you're not a tech or computer geek, you have probably heard of peer-to-peer. It's been around for over two decades now. Napster. Sharing's only fun when it's not your stuff. And examples of this technology have been in the news lately. We're looking at Bitcoin, this cryptocurrency. But the peer-to-peer concept goes beyond your IT and into everyday life. You may have perhaps taken a ride in it. Uber's a distributed network. It's a peer-to-peer at any point, and wherever that car is, it will match with whatever the kind of opportunity is at that place. Patrick Baltima of Food Maven says in reality, peer-to-peer type distribution networks are common these days, except perhaps in one sector. Food is the, like, last bastion data-free zone. 
And Bultima told an audience at this year's USDA Ag Outlook Forum that big data is essential not only in developing a P2P food distribution model, but also to address what he says is a deficiency in the existing food industry distribution system. The missing ingredient from the system is agility. He explains the current food distribution system is a more centralized approach. You haul carrots and potatoes and whatever from all around the United States to San Joaquin Valley to get it processed, packaged, and then you ship it all around the rest of the world. If you don't have a very sophisticated system or a lot of information technology, that's kind of what you got. Yet that system is not flexible when it comes to last-minute cancellations of orders or shipments by retail entities. That means the chance of food waste and food loss increases, significant in that 40% of the food produced in the U.S. is wasted or lost annually. Or in dollar terms, between two and three hundred billion dollars of food just lost. It's not okay. So now in terms of what a peer-to-peer food distribution model might look like. The real opportunity is to go to a true distributed network and the kind of this decentralized would be representative of what a kind of a local and big food system together would look like. Where we have access to local, but where local are really seamlessly integrated into the big food system as well. However, to make such a network a success, Bultima says data, lots of it, and standardized is essential. As a result, there's no visibility that can kind of enable this peer-to-peer networking of food through the system. It all goes in pipes to other big places to go down other big pipes without any agility. To that end, collaborations are forming to explore how to build such P2P food distribution models on the retail and wholesale levels. Walmart and IBM have partnered and have a number of vendors and applying blockchain, which, by the way, it may not just be Bitcoin speculation that blockchain is good for. And I think that there are some things that are really quite encouraging that could actually create the data infrastructure that we need. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. No doubt about it, 2018 has started off wacky as far as the weather goes. Area growers are seeing, well, for 2018, it got kind of warm early and then it got kind of wet and then it got kind of cold and repeat as necessary and that's the way the weather's been we've been whipsawed around and there's a lot of crops that are having a difficult time in 2018 let's talk with chuck engel sacramento county farm advisor and find out what the problems are locally and chuck i would think with not enough chill hours Rain at the wrong time of the year, maybe the occasional hailstorm and maybe a, a heat wave in February, th- that can play havoc with a lot of blooming orchards, can't it? Yeah, definitely. It did play havoc with them, uh, especially cherries, but also with pears. The crop is down in the pears and, of course, in the cherries. Chilling hours was a big part of it. Uh, they just Over the last 10 years, we've had only one year, 2012, where we had totally sufficient chilling hours for cherries, which is at least a thousand hours, chill hours. Um, And in uh, 2014, we had only 480. I don't know that I'm seeing a trend over the years, but uh, that's an issue, but it's not the biggest issue we had with the cherries this year. And this has happened before where you have early February in the mid seventies and they're just coming out of chill. So they're starting to wake up, but it's too early for them to wake up because then on February 20th, we ended up with mid-20s uh, temperature that killed a lot of buds because they were starting to become active and they were more tender. So that really set them back on the bloom. The other part of this is the heat. So in late March of this year, we had uh, five days or so at or above 80 degrees. 
And so there was flowering still going on, of course, and the heat just destroys the pollen tube growth on those flowers. Now, there's so many varieties that they bloom at different times, so some of them will escape some of these extremes, and some of them, like rain uh, and, and lack of pollination. Uh, it's just all these different factors this year combined to create real problems for cherry growers. Are cherry growers seeing any ramifications from the very wet winter we had of 2016-2017? Well, yes. There are some growers who lost some actual acreage, the whole whole blocks or portions of blocks up against the levee, and the, and the water was running uh, high and for a long time last year. So we had under levee seepage, so the water seeped underneath, and standing water for months or at least weeks for cherries is not a good thing. But most of the acreage did okay as far as the uh, seepage goes because it happens every year, and this is a threat. Um, you know, I didn't know if we were going to be able to grow cherries uh, 20 years ago on any extent, and and yet we do, uh, of course, just fine, except for these extreme weather events that we're getting. And, and the prediction is for continuation of those weather events, extremes, that is. When we do get uh, insufficient chill, we end up with delayed bloom and extended bloom, and that has the effect of sometimes causing different varieties of cherry to, to flower at different times. So some some years, one variety will overlap nicely with your main variety. Other years, it won't overlap at all. So, so this is the kind of effect we get from these extremes sometimes. And we also, you know, we're having, it's predicted, as recently predicted, that we'd have these precipitation whiplashes and uh, where drought alternates with intensely rainy winters. We're, we're going to, in the future, have more extremes. And cherries, unfortunately, ha- are predicted to not weather those very well because of their sensitivity to bloom time conditions and pre-bloom conditions. So it's going to be challenging for cherry growers. Pear crops have long been one of Sacramento County's premier crops. It's usually in the top five in Sacramento County. How does the Bartlett pear and other pear crops look in Sacramento County this year? Generally, not bad. We're definitely down from last year. Uh, No doubt about it, some blocks worse than others. It's looking okay, and it always takes a while before growers really notice because the fruit are small and they're not easily seen except when you get real close to the tree, but you have variability in the orchard too. But generally, uh, it's going to be a lower than normal year this year, which is unfortunate. Pears are one of Sacramento County's main crops, yet the acreage for pears has been shrinking over the years. What are the reasons growers are telling you for the shrinking acreage of pears? Uh, There's just overall less demand, and the, the big thing is the world supply. And that affects our prices. So we have lower prices in general as all the, all the fruit that's dumped in the world and competes against us all year long or most of the year. People just are not eating quite as many as much canned fruit anymore. So we're down to only a couple of canneries where as many years ago we had dozens of them in our region. So uh, it, it's a tough market for pears, but the growers actually are pretty resilient, and they've held them on there for a long time. We're, uh, when I first started, we had about 
7,000 acres of pears in Sacramento County. Now we have about 5,000, so it slowly has declined, but I think it's going to remain stable. Of the issues that pear growers might relate to you as far as problems with pears, I would think labor is up there because that affects a lot of our commodities. Uh, Yeah, labor is a huge problem, especially for pears, which require so much labor for harvest and and, uh, various practices through the year. And the, the cost is going up. The availability is going down. It just becomes really difficult to grow pears or will as time goes on because of these labor problems. In past years, fire blight's been a big big problem with Sacramento County pears. How about for 2018? Has it reared its ugly head yet? Yes, uh, growers have been telling me they are seeing fire blight now, especially on the more sensitive varieties. And I was looking at the fire blight model, which tells you when the greatest pressure is. We had a period in uh, early April where it became uh, very... The, the models predicted very strong conditions for fire blight. Uh, and that's since abated a little bit, but we had, we reached our threshold. There's a real potential for having bad fire, fire blight this year. And now with the warm weather we've had recently, the, the model is predicting very high conditions again now. And it probably will continue for much of the rest of the season. So let's end this on a, on a happier note. Uh, of all the crops that you monitor here in Sacramento County, what are the growth crops? Which which are the ones that are getting planted more and more? Well, wine grapes are still being planted, which is great. They're a relatively easy crop to grow, especially when you compare them to higher labor crop like pears and cherries. We're seeing more interest in almonds and walnut. Now, you don't usually think of those crops as being important in the Delta, but they are being planted. They work uh, as long as the drainage is pretty good. And we've definitely had some drainage issues. But as long as that water can, can move off the site, uh, away from the levees, and even away from the center of the island where water tends to drain down too. If you have good drainage, you can do it. We have some lower um, winter chilling down in the Delta area, which could become an issue. But almonds require about half of the chilling, the winter chilling, that pears do. And so they'll be able to tolerate it to some extent. But that's certainly one of the concerns. We have a good rootstock that will help with with flooding or soil, excess soil water. And that's called Crimps 86. So we have the ability to, to grow, I think, pretty good crops with almonds, as long as the world market stays good. Uh, I think we have some potential for that. I think it was Dolly Parton who once said, I'm a tree, I can bend. And that sure is the case with Sacramento area farmers and farmers throughout California who have had to put up with whipsaw type of weather along with uh, changes in crops and uh, other things they can't control like labor or export markets. The local farmers and all farmers in California always seem to find a way to keep on farming. Chuck Engel, Sacramento County Farm Advisor. Thanks for telling us about Sacramento County and the crops and how they're doing. Okay, Fred, thanks for having me. There are approximately 800 certified farmers markets and approximately 2,500 certified producers. But you may be thinking, well, what could possibly be available now in mid-spring? 
Well, you just might be surprised. Besides a wide variety of greens and citrus that are farm fresh, there's lots of specialty vendors that are making up a growing contingent of California's farmers markets. The Placer County Farmers Market in Roseville is a typical example. Come out and enjoy the Placer Grown Farmers Market every Tuesday at the Fountains at Roseville. We have a great selection of craft vendors selling everything from honey, salad dressings, pot stickers, jams and jellies, we also have a great selection of regionally and locally grown produce. We have strawberries from Watsonville. We also have carrots that are locally grown here in Placer County. Spring onions are finally in the market. And we also have a great selection of chard. Treat yourself with a little bit of ice cream or yogurt from Long Dream Farms or some fresh cut flowers. Have questions about the food that you're eating? Don't hesitate to start a conversation with the person behind the table. In many cases, you're actually dealing with the farmer that grew your food they'd be happy to answer any questions for you. If you'd like to learn more about Placer Grown, visit us at placergrown.org. Of the 800 California certified farmers markets, about 50% are year-round markets and the rest, they're open on a seasonal basis. In a typical year, the majority of the seasonal markets operate from April through October. When the term veterinarian comes to mind, you might envision the public and private practice veterinarians that you normally think of. A veterinarian is a well-respected medical professional. People just have an affinity for their veterinarian. But as USDA Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service Field Officer Amber Hedden and Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue are quick to point out, the field of animal health and veterinary medicine covers a wide range of practices and career opportunities that addresses everything from animal welfare to food safety. I'm Rod Bain, and a look at the wide world of veterinary medicine and those who are a part of it is the subject of this edition of Agriculture USA. The importance of animal health professionals everywhere is recognized indeed by the first ever veterinarian to hold the office of U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue. That's a real honor, and the USDA has a lot of veterinary responsibilities. Yet what many may not realize is the broad scope of careers and opportunities available in the animal health sector, whether private or public. Like Kim Ford Foley of the Agriculture Department's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, involved in modeling and analysis of animal health issues that could impact livestock agriculture and food production. My role is to work with other agencies and provide our own agency as well some timely and reliable advice in the areas of infectious diseases, veterinary medicine, epidemiology, disease modeling, counterterrorism, emergency preparedness, and what you see a lot of veterinarians doing in terms of taking care of livestock and surgery and those types of things. USDA APHIS also models the diverse realm of veterinary science through its various missions. From the research perspective, APHIS's Jason Lombard, whose efforts have included a U.S.-Canadian joint assessment started over a decade ago to study dairy cow welfare. What started out as our NOMS welfare assessment has now become an assessment that's been used across Canada, across other countries, and used more intensely in terms of looking at farms in the United States. So that was one of the things that has had, a, I think, an impact on how we look at animal welfare in multiple countries, and it was all stimulated by the work that we were doing here at Veterinary Services. APHIS's Amber Hedden is a field veterinary medical officer working with producers and stakeholders on the ground level on various animal health issues and disease prevention measures. Yet she sees the most important aspect of her work as education. Educating our laypersons 
is just as important as educating those that are working with animals every day. Because the more you know, the better you in helping others prevent disease, biosecurity measures, and working with your everyday animals. Especially as more people raise backyard poultry flocks or livestock. There is also international collaboration between those in the animal health and veterinary sectors to assure our nation's and world's food supply is safe. Maria Romano of APHIS says the relationship is on display in dealing with import and export of live animals and animal products. They have a very, very great, diverse, smart group that works with different countries to make sure that we're doing risk assessments. We're fully communicating between the two groups that we're not bringing in things in an unsafe manner. We don't just produce the food here in the United States. We rely on a lot of other countries to get and source what we need. And so it's important to maintain those strong relationships and to make sure that we're doing it in a scientifically sound manner. Now, Romano is not a practicing veterinarian by trade, but her veterinary science degree gives her greater understanding in her role with APHIS in bridging the gap between concerns of animal health and human health. If you don't have a safe food supply, if you don't have enough food to eat, that's going to not only affect disease outbreaks, but then also we're going to have an issue with there's not enough resources to go around. So it's really important to start at the very beginning from production and then focus all the way through to the end of distribution. Likewise, there is specialized veterinary training combined with law enforcement and investigative skills to make up animal cruelty investigation units across the country. John Warden heads the first such school for this special interest, the University of Missouri's National Animal Cruelty Investigation School. We have individuals that have not worked in the profession of animal cruelty investigations or animal welfare in the past, but we go from that level to we've actually had veterinarians in our classes. We've had law enforcement of different levels of rank. We've had animal care and control workers that have been in the field for anywhere from from two days to 15, 20 years that are just looking to increase their education and their knowledge. As Secretary Purdue notes, in conclusion, it's a profession that can take you anywhere you want to go. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. A single breakthrough discovery for managing citrus greening in Florida and other citrus states such as California in the future is unlikely. That's according to a new report by the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine. The committee that wrote the report called for a systems approach to prioritize research on the disease and strategically distribute resources for research in order to effectively manage the disease. Citrus greening, also known as HLB, is the most serious threat to citrus growers worldwide. In the long run, HLB solutions would likely utilize new technology such as gene modification and gene editing focusing on targets that mediate molecular interactions among the plant, the bacteria, and the vector, that according to the committee that wrote the report. As interest in using genetic modification in research grows, the report from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine recommends that the Citrus Research and Development Foundation should also consider funding research to assess stakeholder acceptance of the technology and expand efforts to educate growers, processors, and consumers to facilitate the eventual deployment of genetically modified lines of citrus. One of the strategies being researched is called thermotherapy.
Now, what exactly is thermotherapy? Joseph Trotashad, he's a senior engineer of the University of Florida at their Citrus Research and Education Center, explains. For a decade now, citrus greening, also known as HLB, has been spreading quickly in Florida, as well as other citrus producing states. Researchers and growers continue to collaborate in various efforts to deliver viable, long-term solutions to tackle greening and maintain sustainable and cost-effective citrus production. In the meantime, citrus trees will continue to die unless something can be done to prolong their lives and keep them producing. Thermotherapy, or heat treatment, is starting to be seen as a potential way to sustain life and productivity of greening-infected trees. Thermotherapy is a centuries-old technique which has been used to treat seeds, seedlings, fruits, and other parts of infected plants. Studies mostly use temperature-controlled chambers as the thermotherapy method. Other methods include exposing the plant or plant parts to hot moist air or hot water vapor. Past findings showed that after an infected tree is exposed to thermotherapy, it is able to stay healthy for two to three years before any signs of reinfection start to show. More recent studies provided evidence that citrus plants grown in a higher temperature environment show lower rates of infection and also success in reducing the pathogen from unhealthy trees. The temperature time combination used in the experiments varied depending on the method used. Lower temperatures of 95 to 113 degrees Fahrenheit were applied for days to months, while higher temperatures of 113 to 131 degrees Fahrenheit were applied for minutes to hours. In the past three to four years, efforts have been made to translate thermothy into a feasible field-scale technology with targeted use in large groves with commercial value. In-field thermotherapy is done directly onto mature trees and groves. It usually involves covering the canopy of the tree and then trapping heat inside the cover. Other efforts are being made to see if there are ways to also treat the roots to give a comprehensive treatment to the entire tree. The use of thermotherapy directly in the field may be an alternative to the removal of trees. It may help growers keep producing fruit in spite infection being present. In summary, we are using in-field thermotherapy for citrus screening because it shows potential to save trees in the short term in order for them to keep producing while continuing efforts are being made to find a long-term solution. It provides an immediate way to treat mature trees directly in a grove, maybe even multiple trees within an acceptable time and cost frame. It doesn't introduce any environmental risks due to its simple principle of using heat and no use of chemicals. That's Joseph Trotashad of the University of Florida's Citrus Research and Education Center. To find out more about the battle against citrus greening and the pest that spreads the disease, the Asian citrus psyllid here in California, visit the website CaliforniaCitrusThreat.org. That's CaliforniaCitrusThreat.org. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour, heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.